Last week in John's Gospel, we began looking at chapter 4, and we saw Jesus reach out to someone he would not have been expected to reach out to. Jesus, a Jewish man, approached a Samaritan woman and asked her for a drink. And then he went on to offer her living water. And what he meant by living water was something much more than water from a well that would temporarily quench physical thirst. When Jesus offered that lady living water, he was offering to satisfy her thirst for spiritual reality and eternal life. And Jesus announced himself to be the source of that living water. He told the lady he was God's Messiah. He was the individual promised in the Old Testament who would deliver God's blessing and salvation. That's where we left things last week. Jesus and the woman were alone at the well. The reason Jesus was alone was because his disciples had gone into the nearby town to buy food. The reason the woman was alone was because the people of the town were keeping their distance from her. We saw last week that was probably because of her lifestyle choices. After five marriages, she is now living with a man who is not her husband. And that made her an outcast among her own people. But now as we pick up the story in chapter 4, both Jesus' disciples and the people from the town are going to become involved in what's going on. It's no longer just about Jesus and the lady. We're going to pick up at chapter 4, verse 27, just after Jesus has announced himself to be the Messiah. And we'll read down to verse 42. If you haven't found the passage yet, in the church Bible, it's page 1067. And in the larger print Bibles, 1653. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor." 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is God's word. And it ends in verse 42 with this declaration by the Samaritans that Jesus is the savior of the world. But the first part of the passage focuses on Jesus' disciples. They have been with Jesus for some time by this point. They've been watching him. They've been listening to him. They've even been assisting him by baptizing those who responded to his message of repentance. But now they're challenged to go further than just being around Jesus they're confronted with the challenge of joining Jesus. First of all, in finding refreshment and renewal through service. We've already mentioned the reason Jesus was alone by this well in Samaria was because the disciples had gone into the town to buy food. They're traveling north on foot from Judea to Galilee, and as they pass through Samaria, they have taken a break. The disciples went for food, and Jesus, we were told, sat down by the well because he was tired from the journey. And now the disciples come back to the well with their bags of shopping, and verse 27 says they were surprised to find Jesus talking to a woman. As we saw last week, that just wasn't done in this culture. And we know from other writings of this period, many Jews thought it was a waste of time for a teacher to spend time talking with a woman, even if that woman was his own wife. The attitude of the time was, what could a woman really learn? Now, we have seen that Jesus does not have that attitude, but apparently his disciples do. Although they hold back from actually saying what they're thinking. John, who wrote this gospel, was one of the disciples. So John is well placed to tell us what they were thinking at the time. The first question that popped into their heads was, what do you want? Presumably that is what they would like to ask the lady. Why are you wasting Jesus' time? Can't you see he's tired? The other question they'd like to ask, but don't, is to Jesus. Why are you talking with her? If you're low on energy, why waste your energy that you have left on this dead-end conversation? She's a woman. She's also an unclean Samaritan that you shouldn't really be around. And we did hear in the town, Jesus, she's a bit of a shady character. Even her own people keep their distance from her. She's definitely not worth your time. The disciples think those things, 
but they have enough sense to realize Jesus does not share their view of the situation. He doesn't share their prejudice. And so they keep quiet. But what they have done is interrupted the conversation. And verse 28 tells us the woman takes off, leaving her water jar behind. Maybe she leaves it so Jesus can have that drink of water he asked her for at the start of their conversation. That little detail tells us two things. First of all, it tells us although Jesus was thirsty, there were other things Jesus cared about more than quenching his thirst. He was willing to stay thirsty in order to speak to this woman about eternal life. The other thing this detail shows is that physical thirst has become secondary for the woman as well. She came to get water from the well, but now she's heard Jesus' offer of living water, and she abandons her errand to get water from the well. Instead, she goes to tell the people in her town about Jesus. Verses 29 and 30 tell us about what she says to them. They tell us about the positive response she gets. But we're going to leave that to one side for the moment because that's what John does. He'll return to the women and the townspeople down in verse 39. But first, he wants to focus in on Jesus and his disciples. The disciples have brought back food. They know Jesus must be hungry as well as thirsty. So they say in verse 31, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? When Jesus offered the woman living water, she thought he meant ordinary water. And here, when Jesus says he has food to eat that they know nothing about, the disciples think he means ordinary food. But Jesus explains in verse 34 My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What is this about? Well, Jesus is not suggesting he is above needing ordinary food. We were reminded last week he is truly a man. He needs literal food and drink to survive as a human being. He needs to eat and drink for energy and for health, just like the rest of us. But what Jesus is saying here is, there is a greater, deeper source of energy and health in his life. There's a greater source of nourishment in his life. Jesus says that doing his Father's will nourishes him more than literal food and drink ever could. In verse 34, the Father is the one who sent him. Jesus will refer to his Father that way more than 20 times in John's Gospel. Obeying and serving his Father is where Jesus finds his greatest refreshment and renewal. There used to be an advertising campaign where Heineken claimed that their beer refreshes the parts other beers cannot reach. 
Now, no doubt that slogan made billions for Heineken, but it's essentially nonsense. Literal food and drink can refresh your body, but they can't go further. They cannot refresh your soul. But soul refreshment is what Jesus is talking about here. And he says he finds it by doing his Father's will and finishing his Father's work. You might think, well, it's great that Jesus can be refreshed that way, but does this have anything to do with us? Yes, it does. In the next verses we're going to see, Jesus is calling his disciples to join him in his mission, in the work his Father has given him. He will explain what that work is. And so we know this bit is for the disciples as well. This call to join Jesus in finding refreshment and renewal through service. And so this is for us as well. As disciples of Jesus in 2022. And I think this is a real challenge to our thinking. Just consider personally for a moment, where do you expect to find your refreshment? What do you look to for refreshment? What do you do to try and find refreshment? Haven't we been conditioned to believe refreshment comes from carefully protected me time? That refreshment comes from treating ourselves, whatever that means for each of us. In our culture, doesn't it seem just plain obvious that refreshment and renewal come from self-care, not from self-sacrifice? I'm as conditioned to that idea as anyone is. It seems like every book for church leaders these days is about how not to burn out in church ministry. And a lot of it is good advice. I'm sure in previous generations, plenty of Christians paid too little attention to their need for physical rest and recuperation. Many Christians probably did burn out in the midst of their service because they ignored their human frailties. Because they acted like Christians should be above needing a good night's sleep or a balanced diet or regular exercise. Maybe in the past some Christians thought it was a bad thing to have a hobby. Maybe it used to be that way. But those are not our problems today, are they? If Christians in the past needed to learn a bit about self-care, isn't it true many of us have become obsessed with self-care? Jesus had the same physical limitations you and I do. He got hungry and thirsty. The beginning of John 4 confirmed that he got tired like we do. And we know Jesus recognized the value of a good nap. 
to the point where he carried on sleeping in a boat during a furious storm. Jesus was not a robot. He didn't try to act like one. He didn't pretend he was above needing food and drink and rest. But Jesus did not share the obsession with self-care that our society suffers from today. He spent his life pouring himself out in service to his Father in heaven. The climax of that was his death on the cross. But Jesus poured himself out all the way to the cross as well. And here as he speaks to his disciples about that lifestyle, he says, pouring myself out in service is my food. As I pour myself out, I am refreshed and renewed. You and I might listen to that and think, okay, that's what Jesus is saying, but that has not been my experience. In my experience, service is tiring, service is frustrating, it is not nourishing and fulfilling. If that is our reaction, we might want to ask if we are approaching our service in the right way. Are we doing it with the expectation that people will notice what we do and show appreciation? Are we expecting that people will always agree with and support what we're doing? If we approach our service to God in that way, yes, it probably will be frustrating a lot of the time. But what if we start to view our service as an honor and a privilege? We have been invited to participate in the unfolding plan of our Father in heaven. As we pour out our lives in service to him, we are part of something eternal. Something that will never fade away or become obsolete. Doesn't that truth alone bring refreshment to our service? Add to that the fact that doing our Father's will brings us into closer fellowship and communion with Him. When you and I think of it that way, does it even matter whether other people pat us on the back or even say thank you? When we have begun to grasp what Jesus is saying here, won't it give a new perspective on service? Won't we begin to see opportunities to serve not as something to be avoided, but something to be sought after? Whether it's buying supplies for the church kitchen, making tea and coffee, setting up communion, keeping the building safe and in good working order, welcoming at the door, helping in the crash, teaching Sunday school, operating the sound desk, visiting someone at home, giving someone a lift to church. There are a few dozen opportunities to serve. And that's just the official list of jobs to be done. There will be other needs that only you know about. 
in the life of another church member, in the lives of people outside the church who need Jesus, colleagues at work, family members. Many of those needs will be tiring to help with. But as you and I enter into those acts of service, doing that work for our Father in heaven, when we do that, we are joining Jesus in finding refreshment and renewal through service. So why not speak to one of our church deacons? Ask them what you could help with. We had an elders and deacons meeting last week. We're coming up with a decent list of opportunities to serve. There will certainly be something for you. So let's not think of serving in the church as a necessary evil that you end up doing because you're more gullible than the rest. Isn't that how we think of it sometimes? And if you are serving and you're weary, ask God to help you see your service the way Jesus describes it here. As food that refreshes the parts entertainment and leisure cannot reach. Here in John 4, John is asking his disciples to take on his perspective when it comes to serving our Father in heaven. But equally important is that we understand the aim of our service. Yes, it's a wonderful thing that serving our Father brings deep refreshment and renewal to us, but what is our service for? How are we to understand the purpose of it? Well, in verses 35 to 38, Jesus speaks to his disciples about joining him in sowing and reaping a harvest for eternal life. Look at those verses again. Verse 35, Jesus says to the disciples, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. This saying in verse 35, it's still four months until harvest. The point of that is, reaping a harvest is a distinct stage. First you sow, then you wait, then later comes the harvest. Maybe Jesus' disciples are thinking that way about Jesus' work. And their participation in his work. We'll do some sewing, then we'll down tools and wait for a bit. Then it'll be time to get off the couch and do some more work. But Jesus tells the disciples, that saying about four months till the harvest is good advice for a harvest of barley. But you and I are working for a different kind of harvest. And there is no downtime when it comes to this crop. Back in verse 30, we were told the Samaritans from the nearby town began making their way towards Jesus at the well. 
So when Jesus says in verse 35, open your eyes and look at the fields, he's pointing at the people coming towards him. Jesus only began sowing a matter of minutes ago when he told the woman about living water. And now with no break in the process, it's time to start reaping the harvest. It's time to bring these men and women into God's kingdom. It's time to harvest them for eternal life. And so in verses 36 and 37, Jesus explains, when it comes to serving my father, there's no off season. There's no four month break between one stage of the work and the next. No sowing and reaping go on at the same time in this harvest. In the context of God's kingdom, sowing means sharing the good news about forgiveness and life in Jesus. Reaping means receiving and helping those who respond to the good news, those who come to Jesus. And as God's people, we have different parts to play. One sows and another reaps. Maybe in a few months' time, the one who's sowing now will be reaping. The one who's reaping now might find themselves sowing. And isn't that true? Sometimes maybe we look at a church that seems to be growing, or we look at an individual Christian whose witness for Jesus seems to be bringing lots of results. But we can be sure when we look at those situations, those harvests were preceded by plenty of sowing. That sowing might have been done by the same people who are now reaping the harvest, or it may have been done by others. The sowing may have been done by others who never loved, lived to see the harvest that came from their sowing. But the point is, both kinds of work are to go on all the time, Jesus says. If there's a harvest to reap, if people are eager to find out about Jesus and follow him, then that is our work. If there's no obvious harvest to be reaped, if no one seems interested or responsive, well, that means our work is to sow to be the most faithful and creative witnesses we can be, to proclaim the truth about Jesus, to live the most attractive lives we can, so people become curious about us and what it is that makes us tick. As followers of Jesus Christ, as men and women who belong to him and who have joined him in his work, we never have to wonder what our calling is. It's to sow or it's to reap. If there's no reaping to do, we don't assume we're on a break until the harvest magically appears for us to reap. If there's no reaping to do, we get on with sowing. We pray, praying at home, praying together here, we invite people to come and see, like the Samaritan woman did back in verse 29 with the people of her town. 
And we are also sowing as we serve in dozens of ways that enable the church to keep on doing what it does. Week by week, month by month. So long as all of our church ministries are centered on the good news about Jesus, then whatever help you and I give to those ministries is part of the work of sowing. It will all contribute in the end to God's great harvest for eternal life. And on the way, as you and I serve with that harvest in mind, with the completion of God's work in mind, we will find ourselves refreshed and renewed through service. We noticed at the beginning this passage that starts with just Jesus and the woman expands to involve Jesus' disciples and the people from the time. By this point, we've heard Jesus' words to his disciples. And now in the final verses, the focus shifts to the people of the time. They are the harvest Jesus has just been talking about. If the disciples were at the stage of joining Jesus in his work, these Samaritan men and women are at the stage of recognizing Jesus. Back in verse 29, the woman said to them, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And we were told the people responded to her call to come and see. But we might wonder why they respond. After all, we saw last week, this woman has apparently been shunned by the people of the time. That was seen in the fact that she came alone to draw water, and she came at the hottest part of the day. The others would have come earlier when it was still cool. So why do these people now respond to her by going to see Jesus? Well, she has admitted that Jesus knew all about her past and her current living arrangement. And her conversation with Jesus left her seriously wondering if he might be the promised Messiah. And that was enough to get the townspeople heading down to the well in verse 30. This man knows people he hasn't even met before, and he claims to be the Messiah. And then having turned the camera lens away from the Samaritans for a bit, so we could see Jesus teach his disciples about the responsibility and the joys of service, now John returns to the Samaritans down in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Notice how the personal testimony of the woman was enough to get these people interested. But it is as they listen to Jesus himself that they come to make this confession that he is the savior of the world. 
That's not to say anything negative about the woman's testimony. It's just to recognize true faith in Jesus cannot be secondhand. It comes through meeting and listening to Jesus for ourselves. In our time and place in history, that means meeting him and listening to him in the eyewitness accounts that are preserved for us in the New Testament. That's how we meet and listen to Jesus today. When the woman first met him back in verse 9, she couldn't get past the fact that he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. As far as she could see, that meant there was too big a barrier between Jesus and her. How could he be her savior? And Jesus openly admitted to her, yes, salvation is from the Jews. Meaning, God's plan of salvation was foretold to the Jews. It will be delivered by a Jew. That's all true. Salvation is from the Jews. But it is for the world. That's what these Samaritans realize as they listen to Jesus. For so long, these people have been told they're shut out of God's salvation. They've been told that His mercy and grace are not for them. And of course, as long as they rejected God's word and clung to their pagan idols, that was true. But now, in the presence of Jesus, they realize this Jewish Messiah came to save them too. And as they think about that, as they rejoice in the fact that Jesus is their Savior, it dawns on them, He's the Savior of all peoples. If supposed outsiders like them are welcome, then everyone must be welcome. That is what they concluded, and they were right. This morning, you may not yet be at the stage of joining Jesus in his work of sowing and reaping. Maybe the step you need to take today is the step of recognizing Jesus for who he is. The one who came to save you from the guilt and power of sin. If he is the savior of the world, that means he can be your savior. And it also means there is no other Savior. Not for the world and not for you. So come to Jesus. Receive forgiveness for your sin. And begin a new life. Serving your Father in heaven. And as we think about the visitors who'll be coming to the Jubilee event this afternoon, let's approach that time with this truth in our minds and hearts. The Jesus who came to save these Samaritans came to save the people of Pelsol too. He is still the Savior of the world.
In a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper, our celebration of God's salvation in Christ. And as we prepare to do that, let's respond together as we sing, Jesus, thank you. No, no. 